Engaging Leader Podcast, Episode 15. Does your leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, leaders. I am Jesse Leahy. Today, we're going to be talking about how to deal with resistance to change, and I am very excited to invite to join me on today's show, Megan Burns, who is a consultant, speaker, and managing director of Operations Strategy Consulting. Megan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jesse. I'm glad to be here. Now, Megan has more than 15 years of industrial engineering and supply chain management experience, Uh, You've spoken at many conferences, and you are a certified Six Sigma Master Black Belt, and you've been working with companies throughout North America and also 14 different companies. And so that, and I've known you for a couple of years now, and and I've known about your experience in continuous improvement. And so that's why I wanted to invite you today to talk about dealing with resistance to change, because continuous improvement by definition, is change. It's continuously changing. And the general attitude out there is that people don't like change. Do you, do you run into that a lot? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there's sort of that attitude or this opinion that, oh, people don't like change and uh, you know they just want everything to say the same. But I'm always telling my clients, think about it. Look at cell phones, look at laptops, look at smartphones, uh, and how quickly people have adopted that. I mean, my dad, who is a technophobe, um, still sends me text messages and calls primarily from his cell phone. So really, this concept that people don't like change, it's not really true. It's more that people don't like having change forced on them or dictated to them. They really want to be part of the adoption process or part of the implementation process. Interesting. You know, I shared with you before we started the the discussion uh, that my whole introduction into the field of continuous improvement was working at a, with a, uh, a large manufacturer alongside uh, George Konisacker, who has been a CEO at several firms, including Danaher, and was very integral in in implementing continuous improvement uh, at those companies and basically making it part of their culture as it is similar to to Toyota. And one of the biggest things that struck me that I learned from him is that continuous improvement has an intrinsic reward in it, that people actually, when they have the chance to make an improvement that makes their work easier, that improves their working environment, that that in of itself is its own reward. And so if if you can help people sort of see the opportunity there, it won't feel so much like it's being thrust on them. 
and you're right. And it's great that you got to see that implemented by someone who does it so incredibly well, um, because some people don't do it so well. <laughs> uh, but w- some of the key points that you made is it is a culture change. It's not just a set of tools that we go implement. Uh, it really is a transformation of the culture. And that cultural change is usually getting people more involved, listening to people who are actually doing the work and inviting their input into how can we do something differently? How can we improve this? And when they understand that, just as you put it, Jesse, that we're trying to make their jobs easier and their lives easier, because quite honestly, when the work is easier to do, you're less likely to do it wrong. Um, and and they really welcome that and and the fact that they have the autonomy to be able to make changes and that they feel respected enough that people want to hear from them. For the benefit of our listeners who are not aware of the corporate definition of, if you will, of continuous improvement, in face value, it sounds like I'm just improving continuously. And that's that is what what it is, but there there is a specific meaning to that. Can you kind of give us the define that for us and and sort of a brief history? Uh, certainly, when we look at continuous improvement, continuous improvement is as you said. How do we look at our processes? How we do things to improve them with the goal of improving quality, improving safety. Uh, reducing costs. And for those organizations, they're involved in things like ISO. The ISO standard, the ISO 9001 standard, um, actually has a component in there that talks about continuous improvement because the whole aim is looking at how do we improve quality? And a lot of these tools, believe it or not, started during World War II here in the States uh, simply because most of the men who were working in the factories and the manufacturing companies, they went off to war. So there were fewer people here to actually build and supply for the war effort. So we started adapting and developing all these different tools to be able to be more efficient and improve our processes and make sure that we were sending good quality products to the military. What happened is when after World War II and everyone came back, we got fat, dumb, and happy. And we kind of went backwards But the best and brightest in the U.S., people like Deming, uh, really took a lot of these tools. And when we went and rebuilt Japan, exported them to Japan, and they just took it and ran with it. And, And Toyota, people hear about Toyota and the Toyota production system. They became the poster child for this whole continuous improvement, uh, really as a culture type of thing. Um, they became the poster child. They, they weren't the only ones, but they're the ones that most became associated with it. And and then we kind of re-imported it back into the States in the 80s. And, and that's where it started getting married up with the whole Six Sigma initiative and total quality management and whatever you call it, the bottom line is customers are getting more demanding. They have higher standards. They're much more knowledgeable about what they're looking for and the processes. Uh, And so companies need to be able to deliver and they need to be able to show that they're making strides to meet those customer expectations and, and Continuous improvement is sort of this overarching umbrella of how to do that. 
it's it sounds easy to say, and when you describe it the way you described it, it sounds like well, yeah, we should all be doing this, and yet it's obviously not that widespread. There's lots of companies trying to do it or saying they're doing it, but there's not a whole lot that are really competing in the you know, at the level that Toyota is. But why why is that? The reason why, at least based on my experience, Jesse, and what I've seen with our clients and the organizations that I've worked with, and and let me just say that this is not just a thing in the U.S. Uh, as you mentioned in the intro, I've worked with companies in many different countries, and it comes down to, do you view continuous improvement as something that is a part of your overall business strategy? This is what we're going to do as our competitive advantage? Or is it this nice little initiative that we're going to put over here on the side because it sounds good and customers want it? And that's where we get into the difference. The companies that are doing really well, like the the Toyota, the Howard Miller, uh, these organizations that really embrace continuous improvement, they have actually integrated it with their overall business strategy. It's not a separate entity and their measurements and their metrics from the top down drive and reinforce this behavior. Unfortunately, many of the organizations that we have seen, it's a side piece or it's an add-on, but it's not really united with the overall business strategy, which is why they're not getting necessarily the results or you know, they're not measuring to drive that behavior because at the end of the week, at the end of the month, the end of the quarter, when they need to ship and someone says, oh, we have a problem here. Who's going to make the call to say, okay, we can't ship because we're not meeting our standard or listen, if we're late, we're going to be penalized or we promise. So ship it now and we'll fix it later. And unfortunately, that attitude is more prevalent than, you know, sometimes we'd like to admit. So there's a lot of companies where it, it's not really a priority from the top all the way down. It's sort of somebody in the in the company has kind of made it a program, and it just runs kind of like the flavor of the day, and it's, all, it's rather optional. Unfortunately, yes, it's it's what I say um, when organizations are involved. In continuous improvement and their executives are involved and they'll say, oh yes, we support it, but they're not committed. It's that whole chicken and pig breakfast illustration. You know, the pig is committed to breakfast. The chicken is involved and supportive of breakfast. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, that's what we see is a lot of executive teams, especially when it comes down to, you know, those crunch times at the end of the quarter or the end of the month, they're supportive, but they're not necessarily involved. They're, they're not committed like, you know, the pig is. Now, uh, some of the aspects, or maybe a lot of the aspects of continuous improvement, rely on a lot of faith, don't they? That y- in the early stages, you as a person, as a worker, from the whether you're on the on the factory floor or you're the CEO, for you to truly be committed would require you to spend time doing things that don't f- that, that, that don't feel like they're really going to be make a difference. And for for example, the way that 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 I've communicated, that there's 
you know, one of the one of the tools of continuous improvement is the the Kaizen event, which is typically a week long exercise that you have a, where you have a team of people, and they are going to totally tear down a a certain process and commit an entire week to getting as much waste out of a process as possible, and that just feels like a big waste of time in the, in the early stages for for someone to do that. And do it maybe even more than once a year. Maybe do two of those kinds of week-long events a year. Is that am I am I kind of reading that correctly? That there's some skepticism about whether this is this really works. Oh, absolutely. There is a lot of skepticism, and whether it's the executive office or the shop floor, um, there's a. You know, the whole attitude of, oh, well, we've tried this before, or we've tried suggestions before, and it didn't work, or no one took us seriously. Uh, and, and so there is a lot of element of faith that if we commit, you know, it's not just money to train people, but like, as you said, it's time, it's resources, maybe lost production, if we're going to take an area down. And, and then the whole, it's not just the, can we fix it? Can we sustain it? That's probably one of the biggest challenges is if I put all of this effort into it, six months down the road, 12 months down the road, are we still going to be able to see an improvement? And, and that's a big hurdle for people to get over. And, and that's actually one of the reasons why the Kaizen events are good and effective because they're very short in duration and very intense uh, as opposed to maybe a six-month-long project. And so you can actually start seeing the impact and the result in a short amount of time. So you can start building that momentum from one area to go tackle another area and say, hey, it worked here. Now let's go try it somewhere else. And after you do two or three of those and you start building that momentum, then your skeptics start to buy in a little bit more. And when we were talking that, about that resistance to change, sometimes by just getting one or two of those areas and that ball rolling can help smooth things along and lower that resistance. Where You get to the point where people start saying, hey, when are you coming to my area? I want my area to get cleaned up and start looking better and make it easier for me to do my job here. What's tough about continuous improvement is you have to engage employees in it. First of all, there's a challenge in just engaging employees and leaders in it. But if you can do that, then it actually helps employee engagement going forward as you get the momentum and people really see the results and they see that this is work that really makes a difference. Improving a process makes my job easier, but it also delivers a higher quality product with better service and lower cost for the customer. People, they, they become much more engaged in their, in their work uh, going forward in, in, the, in the mission of the company. But it's a leap of faith. And, and I've seen companies where, you know, the CEO and CFO and other key leaders would basically be preaching, yeah, we need to do this continuous improvement stuff. And yet, you know, a year and two years into the journey, they themselves actually haven't done one of these week-long Kaizen events. They maybe believe it in their head, but they really aren't committed in their heart. They really don't believe it's worth the, the company's time to invest in this process. And that's why it's hard sometimes when we're talking about engaging employees for them to really want to 
give of their best ideas when they see that the executive team is not really committed to it um, because they're thinking, well, if I sit, are they going to do anything with it? Um, and when executives are involved in it and really committed, that's where you see the transformation because Continuous improvement is a fabulous way to engage employees. Uh, if you go back to, I mentioned Deming before, he listed out the eight deadly wastes. Most people leave off the eighth and they just call them the seven deadly wastes. The eighth deadly waste is underutilized employees. And now that doesn't mean people are just sitting around twiddling their thumbs. It's the attitude of viewing people as a body with a pair of hands as opposed to tapping into their knowledge and their experience. Uh, let's face it, if you have a machinist who's been running a lathe for 30 years, they know something about how to run that lathe. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, they may be a little jaded or a little reserved. And so a leader or an executive really wants to en engage his people and transform his organization. Uh, he has got to be committed. Like you said, you, it can't just be head knowledge. They need to be out there leading their own you know, projects and Kaizen events. Lord knows the offices have huge opportunities for improvement because no one ever looks at them. The mm -hmm. shop is the place that always gets the attention. But as they start leading by example, that's where you start engaging those longer-term employees who are kind of sitting back uh, and waiting. You mentioned if, if they're going two or three years down the line, you know, you may get your uh, shorter-term employees engaged up front, but those long-term employees, they're going to sit and wait and see if you're really serious about it. And if you're leading your own events, eventually they're going to start coming up saying, I have an idea for you. What do you think if we try this? And that's where you really start transforming an organization. Interesting. And these continuous improvement efforts should be taking place both in the production facilities as well as with administrative processes in the offices. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, everything from, and, and I'm going to speak because I work mainly with manufacturers, but you look at your sales process. How do we eliminate the waste in the sales process? Here's how one, sales and engineering and this iterative cycle that goes through what sales is promising or saying the customer wants, what engineering designs, taking it back to them. I mean, that in itself can be a weeks or month long process. How do we streamline that? How do we make that more efficient? How, how do we make sure we're designing for manufacturability? And then talk about finance, accounts receivable, accounts payable. How do we shorten those cycle times? How do we get payments in here more, more quickly? There's so much opportunity there outside of the shop floor that these really can be applied to many different industries. Well, I think your example with the with the engineers and the sales team is is great, and it, and it, you, it's I think it's easy for a lot of our listeners to think about that example and how that once you trust this process and you go down the process and how you would feel engaged. Let's say you're the the engineer that is creating these new solutions. And in the in the past, there's there's you know in any company, there's a lot of stories where, I'm an engineer. I work, you know, my butt off for a year 
or two years on this and it we we create it and nothing the company doesn't do anything with it we have one sale or and it just dies and how that can change with continuous improvement is a much quicker more responsive process so that i'm really not working on things that end up being a waste of time and and if the process is faster how much more excited as an engineer am i going to be if i'm creating a solution and it gets put into the marketplace in six months as opposed to waiting two years to see what actually whether it actually flies or not and that momentum can be huge and can really spur on much more creativity Absolutely. Um, not to mention the competitive edge that it's going to give the organization as a whole. Uh, innovation. I mean, that's a big word that people are throwing around. And if you can do that, that's naturally going to feed into your ability to innovate. And the, yeah, and, and just the overall, as you said, the competitive edge, no matter what role you are in, in the company, we all want to be part of a winning team. So when when you're succeeding, you're just naturally going to be more, in, it's easier to feel engaged in, in a team that's succeeding. So it's easy to see why continuous improvement is a good idea. And yet, it's you still run into resistance to change, don't you? What You've identified a few different types of resistance. What, what kinds should people be aware of? Yeah. yeah, there are four main types of resistance that people will typically run into. And, uh, it, and this isn't my own. This comes straight out of human behavior and organizations and, and psychology. Uh, the first type of resistance that, you're, that we talk about is cognitive resistance. And that is really, it's logical. It's where someone doesn't trust your data or your analysis. And so if you want to engage them, if you want to avoid or minimize their resistance, you really need to um, get them involved in gathering the data, get them involved in doing the analysis, because it's all logical. And once they understand it, they become your greatest supporters. Um, Another type of resistance is ideological resistance. This is probably the most difficult type of resistance to deal with because it's usually rooted in the heart, in values, where uh, if someone is launching a change and they see this as a violation of what made us great. Uh, so, and, and you typically see this in middle management with people who have had very long tenure. And the best way to deal with this is to look at what you're trying to achieve and anchor it to similar values that made the organization great or, um, you know, go back and and promote positive, encouraging, uh, engaging type of values that could be aligned with it. Uh, What you don't want to do is argue because you can't really argue about values. So, Ideological resistance is about values. Of course, it's an uphill battle to try to communicate values that aren't actually present in the existing culture. But most companies already have some things they are doing well. As you said, it's what made us great in the first place. So if you can build on those existing values, you can engage their support rather than set off alarms that create ideological resistance. But most companies have some inherent values that they're probably already doing, you know, that, that relate well to continuous improvement. We're, we're already doing this aspect of continuous well. Um, we're already known as the, the, the 
fast service company. And and so now we just want to take some of what we're doing and and get even better at that and apply it to our quality and our and our cost, our productivity and efficiency. Let me give you an example. When I was a plant manager, I had one of my day shift foremen who was really resisting a particular change that we were doing. What Basically, what we were doing is we were going to take one of the operations and we were going to automate it. Uh, We had huge injury risks. I had people going out with carpal tunnel all the time. But she had learned this job from her dad when she got out of high school. She had been doing this job longer than I had been alive. There was this... uh, resistance there because it, it was very meaningful to her. And and I, I was just going to come in and automate the whole process. And when we went through this, we talked a lot about what the reason why we were so good at at what we did and why we were one of the best plants in the because we had traditionally always taken advantage of technological advances. And we were always very focused on safety of our employees. And that's why people wanted to come work for us because it was, we, we paid well, we were always giving them new skills and it gave them the ability, it was a very safe environment. So when you frame the change in those terms, you know, we're not trying to eliminate jobs. We're not trying to harm the organization. We're just building on what we've always done. And by doing this, we're going to give people more skills. They're going to actually be in a higher pay code because they're going to be operating this. And it's going to enable us to be a lot safer because we don't want people getting injured. So that's one example of how you can take something that is often a contentious uh, situation and deal with something where, where people have those, those emotions involved in it and, and help get them on board with you. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, the third type of resistance is psychological. And really, that, that's fear-based. People are afraid of things getting worse. And we, this is a very popular type of resistance that we run into with continuous improvement because people are always saying, well, if you change my process, what's going to happen? Or uh, we're not going to be able to continue doing what we, we've always done. And, and it's really a fear uh, and a fear of losing control. And what you want to do, this is where those Kaizen events come into play, piloting something out, testing it, uh, those small wins and successes, almost like to baby step your way through it and to really encourage and build up the confidence of those individuals who are psychological resistors. Uh, the one thing I will say about psychological resistors is they are great at helping you come up with contingency plans because they will tell you 100 reasons why it won't work. And, and some of them are things maybe you didn't think about. Uh, so they can be very good to help you f- figure out those contingency plans. The last type of resistance we talk about, and I know I'm going through these pretty quickly, uh, but it's power-driven resistance, which is someone who, it, it's also fear-based, but this is fear of loss of control or autonomy. So if you're launching an improvement or a change and someone might lose their position, this is where you really need to tap into those political leadership skills, uh, negotiate, what's your give and take to be able to avoid and minimize that type of resistance. 
And, and it's interesting because they ebb and flow as you're launching any type of change. Different ones will be at more powerful or more predominant at different phases of the project. Learning and understanding why people resist and how to deal with it appropriately can make your change go so much more smoothly than if you just kind of ignore them or try to steamroll them. That's interesting. So cognitive, ideological, psychological, and power. And of course, as you're running through those, I'm connecting them with other you know, principles in, in leadership. And the, the last one you mentioned, power and the, the fear of losing autonomy. It's interesting, you know, that was a big part of uh, Daniel Pink's book, Drive. And uh, as he talks about, what, you know, what are the intrinsic motivators that are key today in the 21st century? And the first of those is autonomy. And there's a lot of types of work that people do where they don't have enough autonomy. And so it's, it's very disengaging to them. But if we can give more autonomy, it, it's intrinsically motivating to them. So you, you don't have to do so much carrot and stick type management. You, you know, the work itself is, uh, is motivating. It seems that when you do uh, a Kaizen event or two and see the results that happen and see how it really gives each person in the process more power I would think that it would be in, intrinsically demonstrating that the, they're not going to lose autonomy. They'll probably get more autonomy as, as a result of this. Now, I was just going to say, you're, you're exactly right on that, Jesse. And, and I will say, I love Daniel Pink's book, Drive. Um, it's a great read. But you're right, those, those Kaizen events, and actually continuous improvement done, done well, should give people more autonomy and and more ability to kind of have influence over what they're doing. And similarly, going back to those points, it should give them greater purpose because now when you look at continuous improvement and you eliminate all those nonsensical things that we do where people say, well, I don't know why I have to do this. It, It just creates extra work for me. Now you're creating, well, this is purpose. We can eliminate some of that or we give them more insight as to why that's valuable, which just creates more of that motivation for people to engage into how do I help? Because now I realize what I do is important. How do you, how do you minimize that particular resistance from the, the outset? Really, when, when you're laying out any type of any project, you really do want to do a stakeholder analysis and understand who, who is affected or involved or has an opinion on what you're doing and understand where do they currently stand. And then once you identify those people who may be negatively impacted or may be opposed to what you're trying to do, this is where you need to start looking at how can I get them involved? Can I get them to co-lead the initiative with me? Can I give them a smaller part of it? Can I highlight to them, we need to change this process. We realize that may move you out of your position, but we want to free you up so that we can tap into your knowledge and experience over here in this area. You always want to highlight how it's going to benefit them. Even if it's just figuring out who has influence over them, who do they respect? Sometimes even getting high potential up-and-comers, more junior employees involved in your initiative can influence them 
to not be so negative or to not be against your project or, or whatever initiative you're leading. That's that's terrific. And I'll just mention to leaders who are listening, if you're interested uh, more in more about stakeholder analysis, I'll put a link in the show notes to a video that we have on our Engaging Leader website. Megan, on your website, you provide a video of a free webinar that provides more specifics about handling these four types of resistance. How can people find that? Well, if they go to our website, which is the OSC Edge, actual word the O S is in Sam, C is in Cat edge.com we have a resources page and so they can go to our resources page and we have our webinars all up there or if they'd rather just go direct to youtube they can find um, our youtube page which is again the osc edge and they'll find all of our webinars on there as well terrific and osc stands for operations strategy consulting Megan, Consultant, Speaker, and Managing Director of Operations Strategy Consulting, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks so much for having me, Jesse. It was a pleasure. We'll also put the contact information for Megan Burns on our show notes, as well as a link to the free video of her webinar about how to deal with resistance to change. And I'll go ahead and put a link to her blog post on the eight most common mistakes companies make with continuous improvement. All right, leaders, that wraps up this episode of the Engaging Leader Podcast. If you like our show, please rate us on iTunes. That makes a huge difference in helping more people discover it. Go to engagingleader.com slash iTunes. We would love to know your thoughts about this episode. You can leave comments on our show notes at engagingleader.com or connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter, where I am at Jesse Leahy. This is a production of Asmodale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with mid-size and large employers on internal communication strategies. Find out more at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Arthur Hankey, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Christopher Seal, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, whether you realize it or not, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of our opportunities to engage the people we care about.